90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. I'm very curious to hear about your field work because... Uh... Great. <laughs> I don't know much about what you did, so... <laughs> I don't <All> right. either. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm very good today. <laughs> are you? I am celebrating a very important day. What day is that? Not only is it my birthday, but it's a very special birthday number. And uh, what's that? 42. Yay! <laughs> the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Yep. So. Are you enlightened now? Um. I think I need to wait till the end of the day to answer that. <laughs> I did joke numerous times today that I couldn't wait for Hagrid to show up to tell me I was a witch. <laughs> and then I always had to jump in real quick before they said, you don't need Hagrid to tell you that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, at my, we had a meeting close to first thing this morning. Two different people brought donuts for my birthday. And I said, wow, how does everybody always know it's my birthday? And I thought, oh, it's because I tell everyone constantly that it's my birthday. So. You get the birthday warning. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was on Just the, so you know, next week's my birthday. On the Outlook invite to this meeting from three weeks ago, it said, feel free to bring Shannon birthday presents. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's me. But yeah. It kind of sucks because I feel like March is my birthday, right? Even though my birthday is the 30th. And my husband's birthday is the second, and he just really ruins that first week of my birthday month by having the audacity to have his birthday. <laughs> what? What nerve? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that's it. And I'm spending it with you, everybody, everybody listening. <laughs> yeah. So, happy birthday, Shannon. Thank you. <laughs> but also, we didn't have a show last week. My fault again. <laughs> <laughs> so you were out of town, out of cell reception, out of everything. And lots happened out back at home. And everything. <laughs> everywhere yes. while you were gone. Uh, um, yes. <laughs> but the world did not burn down. No. Nope. Just part of my lab, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's for another podcast yeah it sure is um no worries it didn't really burn down but yeah so my <laughs> that would have been easier to deal with it sure god it sure would have um yeah since the whole first like three years was me complaining about the magnetometer i feel like we can't do that anymore so. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so we had spring break and then I immediately turned around and missed another week of school, and my student and I went uh, sampling for his master's work to the Mojave Desert. It was hot. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was warm here, so. Uh, yeah. So um, this work is part of the work that I am working on, which is part of a big overall project about the Colorado River. And we oddly haven't really talked about it on here. We've talked about magnetostratigraphy, but we haven't talked a lot about the specific project. Um, so yeah, we thought we would come and do a recap of that since that's where I've been the last week. And it was 
a very productive trip. And it was good to get out in the field again because it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, I got one picture the whole week. Yeah, we, uh-huh. Well, I mean, we're in the middle of the desert, so. <laughs> so cell service was not fantastic. <laughs> we got it the last day, basically. Um, and that was it. And we had these texts saying, when are we recording? Oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> yep yep Yep. (laughs) so we went out there and what we're looking at is the colorado river so we had a um not this student my previous master's student we had last year was it last year yes last year a geology paper on this and what we're doing is magnetostratigraphy so if you don't know what that is go listen to that podcast first (laughs) and then come back and we're looking at as the Colorado River makes its turn out of the Grand Canyon and Lake Mead the timing of how it like entered those basins which we'll talk about is sort of under debate there's also a lot of debate about the mechanism of deposition, but we're looking at these Colorado River deposits and using magnetostratigraphy to determine how long it took the Colorado, basically to make it from Lake Mead down into the Salton Sea. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're using magstrat to constrain timing, which needs to be constrained by other timing sources too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know... It's a difficult thing. Um, Yeah. Uh, These basins, so if you think about the Arizona, California, and Nevada, really at the top there, border, it is the Colorado River. And in this location, there are a lot of volcanics, so Miocene-aged volcanics. Colorado River's been there somewhere around... Six million, five million years. But exactly how long is questionable. But as it made this turn, these areas, if you're familiar with this, or if you pull up a map, you'll see Mojave Valley. Um, Further north is a place called Cottonwood Valley, just north of Laughlin, Nevada. So big Air Force Base there. Um, And then there's the Mojave Valley, And then there is the Parker Valley, and then there's the Blythe Valley. So each one of these valleys was separated from each other by something, either a lava dam or a big landslide. And so as the Colorado River came through there, it didn't just flow straight down to the sea. It actually, which the Salton Sea, which is now to the northwest of where the Colorado River spews out because it's been transported there by strike slip faulting along the San Andreas. Um, But the Colorado River didn't just flow straight down. It actually filled up each of those basins with a lake. And then it filled up to the top like a bathtub and spilled into the next basin and so on and so so forth all the way down till it got to the Sultan Trough at that time. Right. And that... (laughs) That process doesn't happen overnight. So we're talking about <laughs> filling a very large volume. So I've been out there. You know, I had a student that graduated a couple of years ago that worked on this. And he was, he got this 
internship opportunity with the U.S. Geological Survey, the United States Geological Survey, in Flagstaff. Um, what was really interesting, he got that through the National Association of Geoscience Teachers. Every year, they accept nominations for your top field camp student, and then they try to pair them with USGS scientists. It's a really cool program. If you guys are undergrads that are listening, make sure when you go to field camp that your field camp participates in this because a lot of those internships turn into jobs, which are pretty competitive and hard to get. So it's a really neat program. Yeah, so yeah for sure. My student got hooked up with these guys who I already happened to know, completely random that this happened. And so he parlayed that into his master's work. And it was an interesting internship because most internships happen in the summer, but you can't do field work here in the summer. No, you cannot. No, no, you'll turn into the mummy. <laughs> or so, so yeah, you can't do field work here in the summer. He had to go out in the winter, and even in the winter, it's still hot. Um, so this spring break, post-spring break trip was kind of pushing it. It was really hot <laughs> those last two days. Um, but what we're looking at is as these, there's some debate about this model, which these guys call the spill and fill model. Um, so you fill up this basin, you spill over into the next basin. There's some debate about whether that's the way that all these basins got filled up or whether it was actually an estuary as you got further towards the the present day Gulf of California. Um, but that's less of, we're more looking at the timing of these deposits and less about the sedimentary debate over them. Um, so we start work up here in Cottonwood Valley. That's the northernmost basin. And then my next student, the student who just came out with me, he's looking at the next valley down. So in the Mojave Valley is where we were looking at sediments. And it's really cool because, I mean, these huge desert valleys, the Colorado River is flowing through them right now. But to look, to be standing on the riverbank and to look around at the surrounding mountains, which are pretty far away because these are really big valleys, and to think that they were filled up by a lake is really unbelievable. <laughs> and so do you have any idea... I, I know you just got back, but is there any sense of what the timing between the filling of these two valleys was? Right. Um, so we're working on some of my students' previous data, and then we're working in an area that needs more it needs more statistics, right? Because that's all paleomagus. <laughs> so we do have sort of an idea. Um, this previous valley, the northernmost valley, so... That's the oldest rocks, right? And then as you go downstream, they get younger and younger. Um, it was 4.83, somewhere around in there. It was filling right after that time. So 4.83 is sort of at the base of the 100% river deposits. Um, and then the next valley was probably about 300,000 years later, 400,000 years later. I mean, we don't know yet exactly. Somewhere around that. Okay, yeah. I just didn't have a good sense of was it going to be like 50,000 years or yeah. 200,000. So. <laughs> yeah. So some of the basins, it's a little bit faster. So that probably has to do with what the divides are between the basins, which isn't still well understood. 
right? There's a lot of volcanics there, but the volcanics get blown out. Um, landslides are something that commonly make these lakes. So it's around the 100,000 to 300,000 year time frame as you go downstream. I mean, okay. yeah. they're really big lakes. But how do we know that they're lakes, right? And this is where it gets really complicated. I think when we think about sedimentation, oftentimes we just think about stuff being deposited. But there are a lot of times of non-deposition or erosion too, right? And I, I just don't think, it's like when we had that, <laughs> when we had that subtractive fun paper the other day right exactly it's it's not where your mind goes first you're like oh these were deposited but the erosional history makes this like a super complicated but also very fun field geology problem yeah okay so when you were out there you were taking like how are you sampling okay so we had both a drilling permit um, from the BLM, and then in other locations, we were just taking slabs. And so what what are we sampling? What we're sampling are these lake deposits. So what does that mean? They're basically, they're what this group calls um, marl, which the definition of the word marl is worth its own show. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to call it micrite. So basically they're lake limestones. These limestones are, or these lakes are big enough and the, there is so much like calcium in these desert soils that the lakes start participating, precipitating carbonate muds, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. So you've got these carbonate mud deposits and then you'll have... You fill that up, right? So you fill up your basin. And then all around, basically the bathtub ring, which you've been out to, if you've been out to Lake Mead, you know, like they have this like white deposit that's called the bathtub ring. And it's all this calcium carbonate in the water, just right at the water air interface. And it precipitates this stuff called tufa, which is this, oh, it's so gross. Like... <laughs> I act like I hate carbonates, um, even though it's mostly what I work on. And so tufas are, if you've been around like a mineral springs, a hot spring or something like that, you could have travertine, but you could also have tufa. And it's this carbonate mineral that precipitates not out of hot springs, but out of regular temperature water. So ambient temperature water. So it's kind of the same thing. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, ha okay, you've got these lakes. They have carbonates in them. You have these tufas that are deposited right at the water-air interface up high in these mountains. And then whatever is blocking the lake, whether it was a lava dam or a landslide, gets blown out. It could just get blown out by the pressure of the lake, most likely. Now you have a through-going river that is eroding all of these lake sediments. <laughs> yeah, because that is not going to be a 100,000-year drain. That's going to be a catastrophic event. Exactly. With lots of energy. <laughs> exactly. So that's, yes. So you've got hundreds of thousands of years of deposition, and boom, 
now you've got this fire hose pointed at it, essentially. Um, so this is what makes the geology here, when you just stop to think about it, like, it's pretty amazing that these guys, I say guys, it's mostly guys on this USGS team, have been able to work out these relationships. And this is all field work. Like, working this out is literally going into every wash, every valley, and walking around and finding these tufas and these carbonates. And that's what's left. These little pieces in these nooks and crannies are what's left of these paleo lakes. Hmm. Yeah. So... What about, so I mean, after this, this happened quite a while back, mm-hmm. has there been a lot of structure formed after that so that this you've is, got to deal with unfolding too? No, not really. But this is where the fight over what has happened further south. So up, up north, it's 100%. These are lakes and this is a river flowing through here. Now down south, the paleontological data are, um, they're very hotly contested <laughs> about whether the water was just very carbonate rich fresh water from the river and lake formation or whether it was actually an estuary. And so if it was an estuary, that land elevation had to be lower six million roughly years ago during the deposition of these rocks. And that's a pretty big question. I think that the San Andreas fault system has worked on this area since then and offset a lot of these depositional basins quite a ways. Um, But I think that overall, most people think, besides the San Andreas system that's just affected the very southern portion of this, there's not a lot of tectonic activity. So actually, the elevations are much different than they are today. I'm gonna so say you're not out there taking strikes and dips. You're out there nope. everything trying to find flat. context. Yes. <laughs> so everything is flat, which is weird for me. Um, and it's good though, because you asked earlier, like, how are you sampling this stuff? So these marl beds are really these like thin, muddy beds, which is very hard to sample because my drill is water cooled and these are mud (laughs) and mud and water, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) it drills real easy. Drills super easy. Most of the time it all dissolves. (laughs) So you have to drill super fast with not a lot of water. Um, and a lot of these beds are, are even too small to do that. And so what you have to do is take these chisels and rasps that have all been demagnetized in our isothermal remnant demagnetization machine. And you have to chisel out a bed. You have a flat spot on top. So you take your rasp and you get it all flat and you have to mark a direction. Well, it doesn't have a strike and dip. It's horizontal, right? So strike by definition, is the intersection of a horizontal plane with a dipping rock surface. Well, if the rock isn't dipping, what do you mark? The rock isn't striking. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you mark north on it, and that's it. <laughs> so, yep. you, so you have this orientation on this rock where you've marked north, and this is where paleomagnetism and field work, you have to really... When you're working with someone else, 
you have to really make sure you're all on board with the correct methods. Okay, so the methods section is usually the first section anyone writes <laughs> and no one reads, <laughs> except you. I know you love those. <laughs> oh yeah, love the methods section. <laughs> but this is really important because say in our paleomagnetic lab and in a lot of other paleomagnetic labs, when you're taking a strike in the field of your rocks, we actually don't set our compasses to a declination correction. We make that correction in the software. As should everyone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because then you don't have to do that thing of, oh my God, did I reset the declination? And then you check your compass and you're like, oh, have I been out since then? Like what's going on? Just did make... I set it the wrong direction? Yes, yes. Just make it zero. Don't do the declination correction. I hope my field methods course isn't listening to my podcast right now. <laughs> Did you just show them how to set the declination on their buttons? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a big deal. I make a huge deal out of it. <laughs> but so we don't do it. Um, our software has a correction. We make that correction in the software every time for the strike and dip, for the azimuth and the hate, the orientation of the rocks we're taking for everything. So luckily, you know, our USGS colleagues had been doing this with us before and so he knows and right before he takes all these orientations on these rocks you know he's like we're still setting our declination to zero right I'm like yes yes great but that could have really messed us up had that not happened because the declination correction out there is like nine or ten so it's quite significant but you still report strike and dip instead of the proper dip and dip direction <laughs> You're darn right we do, because <laughs> America. <laughs> and you prefer quadrant compasses. That's just me personally. My software does not prefer con quadrant compasses. <clears throat> well, I mean, it was so hard not to make your magnetometer software <laughs> only take dip direction. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Like, I mentioned dip, dip one time, and everybody's appalled by it. And I said, yes, that's the only time I'll say about it. If you work in Europe, you're on your own. <laughs> it makes sense. I know. That's another thing we'll fight about on a different show. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm actually super surprised we haven't had that show yet. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you're going to tell me you use an imperial degree, too. Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> We just sent a bunch of people Googling to know fruit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel like those are like typography nerd jokes. Like, <laughs> it's sort of the same, the same thing. Um, yeah. So that's the importance of making sure everyone in your field campaign is on the same page. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how we did most of our sampling was either we drilled it. Um, or we sampled slabs, which will later be cut in the lab. And because these are, I mean, they're fine grain muds. So a lot of the times when we couldn't drill, we just have to get a slab. And what we do is I have a non-magnetic <laughs> bandsaw blade and we cut these rocks dry with a bandsaw and a huge vacuum next to it while wearing respirators. And we make little cubes out of them, which is very hard and time-consuming. 
And I don't know, do you still have the little cube rock holder that I made for your magnetometer forever ago? I do, but it sags too much. And then it got, um, it's like, it's too, it's magnetic moment is too high and I can't get it down now. Ah, we need to work on that. Yeah, so that was sad. But, uh, so there's that, that, but also they make boxes where the cute, the corners are rounded off so it fits into the round sample holder. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is a little bit of an easier fix. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yes. So, but I still do have a lot of those old boxes that are cubes, so we should talk about that too. Uh, yeah, that's what we do for those. Those are really hard. My student quite correctly wanted to drill as much as possible so he didn't have to do any more of that bandsaw work. Because <laughs> uh, I'll walk down there and there's just this like pile of dust on the floor at his feet <laughs> and he's busted like three bandsaw blades because every time you hit like a piece of quartz or something in there it'll just bust the bandsaw blade so sample prep is intense <laughs> it is highly underrated it certainly is i mean it's almost everything you can get these you can you know get these data off of these rocks in 45 minutes, but it takes you five days to prep a sample. So mm -hmm. it's a big deal. A really big Any deal. idiot can drill a core. But That's right. <laughs> it, it takes a lot of work to get it properly oriented, properly prepared. Oh. If you have to grind it, that sort of stuff. Properly oriented is such a big deal. And we want as little magnetic things touching these as possible right so we've demagnetized our chisels we've done all this stuff you can't just run in there with a rock hammer so there's a lot of work that goes into collecting those precious samples and we wrap them in bubble wrap and lots of duct tape <laughs> and stick them in a box <laughs> for transport back so mm -hmm. so he has a huge box of cores and and slabs to drill and he walked into the lab today and he just looked at him and he said that's going to be a lot of work <laughs> do you want this masters or not i guess <laughs> did you say welcome to grad school uh, that's exactly it <laughs> so yeah he um he had previously we had samples from well, it was from my last sampling trip like two years ago that was the last time we were out in the field collecting samples and so he had done a lot of the sample prep on those but he hadn't had the like pleasure of getting to sample them so I think being out there and seeing where those are taken and then collecting his own samples you know it was a really big deal and I think he had a great time I definitely had a great time I didn't want to come back I was like I'm just gonna live in the desert now <laughs> so we camp just in the middle of the desert there's no nowhere else to stay out there so we just camp in these washes and it's really fun no no wildlife scares this time around no there was one night where there were some weird noises but <laughs> actually there were just so it was still even though it was hot during the day it was still cold enough during the night that there weren't a ton of snakes out so the snakes weren't out we didn't see any um, but there were chipmunks everywhere huh yeah so many chipmunks so that was very interesting because we'd camp in these washes so there'd be some trees and yeah just chipmunks everywhere so you'd hear all all evening and uh that was about it like our usgs buddy that we camp with like he just sleeps on a pad outside which i think is terrifying 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of that. I want at least a <laughs> symbolic layer of yes. protection. Exactly. He's like, it's not worth putting up a tent. It takes forever. And he's like, it's just a piece of fabric. I'm like, it's mentally so much more than that, though. <laughs> yeah, but just a, just a piece of fabric can keep the snake from getting in your sleeping bag oh, with you. Or uh, So everybody's like, did you take a black light? No. I don't want to know how many scorpions are out there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know. And everyone I ever talked to, including our USGS colleague, was like, it's unreal. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm like, I'm good. I think I'm good. I'm just going to live my life right here. So mm-hmm. it was very interesting. Uh, we also wound up sampling way further down, so very far south, um, in the basin too, which is sort of a – we have that data. We'll see if it makes it into the thesis because he already has so much from further up north. Um, but that's where it got really hot, way down in um, – near Cibola, Arizona, and we were in California most of the time, actually, which I didn't even realize (laughs) that we were on that side until we pulled up one day to get gas, and it was $7 a gallon. Ooh. Yeah, $7 a gallon. And I thought, God bless the Midwest. That's what I thought. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gas was $3.52 this morning. Seven bucks. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that is California, like, gas taxes. And so we didn't fill up there. We just stopped there to get a drink. And then we went across the border to fill up, and it still took $130 to fill up our school suburban. Yeah. Well, you know, pretty soon uh, you'll have to be doing electric drilling. <laughs> yeah. In California. <laughs> Yeah, man. I'm very curious how an electric rock drill is going to work in the field. Mm-hmm. I know. Actually, it's funny. We talked about that a little bit in the field. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as well. I mean, you could do solar panel rock drills out there, maybe. If you want to wait a couple days to drill one, of ah. course. <laughs> Look, if it meant I didn't have to come back and check my emails, it was worth it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. I even sent an away message. I said, I'm in the desert. I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, don't even bother. It's not worth it. So, yeah, it was it was lovely. It was really weird to be out doing research sampling just because it's been so long. And it was fantastic. We had great weather, besides it being the desert hot. But got so many samples. Our drill did not break or mess up one time. So it's going Did to you get... just have the one? I have two. Um, one is more temperamental than the other. So that's what I'm okay. down to due to students breaking them. Um, yes. <laughs> and so that's okay. It worked amazing. We took them both. You always take backup stuff. So I also made my poor student. I said, we're going to be in the middle of the desert. We're not going to be near like towns with gas stations or anything. So we have to bring all the water we need to drill and live. Oh, man. We had probably 50 gallons of water. I can't believe you didn't need another undergrad or two just to carry the water. (laughs) So the great thing about most of these washes is that we were pretty close to the cars. It was very, like, normal PMAG drilling. Like, no, we're not going to carry this very far. (laughs) 
So our samples where we got slabs were from much further away from the car. But yeah, we only drilled within a quarter mile of the car. So we didn't have to, we didn't have to lug it too far. As opposed to the times that I went with you where we never (laughs) drilled within less than a mile or (laughs) two from the car. Uh, It wasn't, it was sort of the high desert, I guess. (laughs) It was certainly high because I remember carrying two giant things of water straight up the side of a hill. (laughs) Look, you didn't have to pay your gym membership fees that month. (laughs) That's true. I was, you were getting the PMAG cardio workout. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So we came prepared with a ton of water and I think our USGS colleague brought like 30 gallons. So in the end I was like, here little chipmunks (laughs) have all this water. And I inundated the desert with water. (laughs) Very good. Yeah. So hopefully our work is going to shed some light on the timing of these rocks. It's really neat that, not really neat, it's really convenient (laughs) that these limestones exist in these northern basins because it's very easy to correlate those things, right? And they're bright white. They show up fantastically on Google Earth. He said even one of their colleagues will just sit and look for white spots on Google Earth and say, oh, I bet that's a new, this is the Bouse formation for anyone that's familiar out there. Oh, I bet that's a new Bouse outcrop. And so they'll go out and investigate. And usually it is. So that's cool. Um, what is also, you also mentioned, you know, we can't just take these magne- magnetic results so the magnetostratigraphy results we can't just take them and say this is the age so when you're doing magnetostratigraphy you have to have like an anchor an absolute age somewhere in your section and then you can sort of hang your magnetostratigraphy on that and then your reverse to normal reverse normals will start to make sense in the larger geomagnetic polarity time scale um and so what we use out here are ashes there's a lot of volcanics going on in and around here at these times and lakes make perfect traps for ashes. And so within these marls and associated deposits, there'll be these ash layers. And so we do tephrochronology on the ash layers, either detrital zircon or sanidine analysis to get an exact age. And then we can hang the PMAG on that or the magnetostratigraphy on that and work up and down from there. Tephrochronology. That isn't is <laughs> one of my new favorite words. Ah, isn't it great? <laughs> um, my student just did a, a research poster, even though we just got back. He had some preliminary data from before. He just made his research poster today for our research symposium this Friday. And he's like, man, word spell check really hates the words tephrochronology. <laughs> It has no suggestions. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> yeah. Tefra chronology. So, yeah. Hmm. That's what we use. Um, and you might say, well, why don't you just use that for all of it? Well, ashes, even though there's a lot of volcanics and lakes are really good at capturing them, it's actually kind of hard to identify the ashes versus the carbonate. It's all the same color. And, you know, sometimes you've got ashes, but you don't have the correct minerals amounts in there to be able to actually get a date on them so 
Well, or you've got sorry. tens of meters of carbonate. Yes. That you would like to know the dating in that mm-hmm. and distant one centimeter thick ash layers. That is exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly right. You're you're lucky to get one, maybe two ash layers in a basin period. So we have much more bows than that to sample. So you're exactly right. So you could miss, you know, any of these reversals or anything like that. And the fine, the fine tunedness that the magnetostratigraphy gives you. Yeah, so it's like everything in geology. You've got to take multiple somewhat sketchy sources <laughs> and combine them to try to get one <laughs> only moderately sketchy estimate. Oh, that's exactly right. Man, my um, my field methods class really disliked me today, beca- or yesterday, um, because I made them do this cross-section and work out the subsurface geology with very little data. And so they were all like, but it could be this, or it could be this, or it could be that. I said, yeah, sucks, huh? <laughs> and as I so often do, I said, it's not an exact science, guys. Be true to your data and explain to me why you think it is the way you picked it. So there are a lot of... You have to use some geologic intuition (laughs) most of the time. There's so many people that are so uncomfortable with that, right? Like they want the checklist. They want to do the checklist, present the checklist, be graded appropriately. What if there's a fault here? Well, do you expect there to be a fault here? That's exactly what we talked about. Half the people said yes, half said no. Both had good reasoning on either side. And that's the beginning of a conference symposium. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) I think it kind of blew their minds that geology works that way. But it does. (laughs) Well, and you know what would help is if they could get their hands on the data that their uh, other coworkers have used. Mm, That's exactly right. And reproduce it themselves. Which brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Uh, this is a super disturbing paper. I, I really hate it when we talk about this. So first of all, thanks, Daryl. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> I just assumed. For this paper. <laughs> yep. Uh, Daryl also had sent, right before recording a paper or two that I was very interested in uh, and are very pertinent, but they were a little chunky for Mm. right before recording. Gotcha. I know that, uh, you know, it's your birthday. You had gone out to dinner and things and probably didn't want to sit down and tuck into about a 40 pager. I appreciate that, but we'll do that next week, I imagine. So thank you anyway, Daryl. So this is an empirical analysis of journal policy effectiveness for computational reproducibility by Stodden, Seiler, and Ma. Um, So this PNAS paper talks about, yeah, this is like a really important topic that I feel like we bring up a lot. If you're writing code to crunch your numbers or do anything... Like, does the code, do the journals require that the code gets made available? Do they just require that the methods, but not the exact code, be made available? And what is made available, can you use that to actually accurately reproduce data? And as always, the answer is no, and that's very disturbing. (laughs) Well, and even just forget the code, you know, 
will somebody share their data with you? Because all these <laughs> journals, you have to sign a thing that says my data are available and here's how you get to it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think they should reject papers. I have done this in the past before there were good data repositories. And, you know, I'd say, hey, you can get the data through FTP transfer from the author. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. At and- this point in time, there are enough data repositories. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your paper should be rejected for that. Uh, uh, uh. It's so disturbing at how many papers didn't have any of that, right? Or they said, email us for the data, and then you email them, and they go, ah, no. (laughs) I mean, so this was the funny part of this fun paper, all they're disturbing, are these responses when asking for data that it said would be available from these scientists, right? (laughs) I don't even know if it's funny. These responses, a couple of them made me, like, visibly angry it's funny that this is a thing it's funny that this is even yeah exactly exactly you said you can email us for this and then when emailed for it these outrageous things like we don't share internal data or code with people outside our collaboration okay but some of them are much worse than that right the one that probably got me the worst were the first two Mm -hmm. um so one author responded when you approach a pi for the source codes and raw data you better explain who you are whom you work for why you need the data and what you are going to do with it that's just plain snotty but then not to be topped (laughs) uh we have i have to say that this is a very unusual request without any explanation Please ask your supervisor to send me an email with a detailed, and I mean detailed, explanation. This is outrageous. How's this for a detailed explanation? The terms and conditions of your federally funded work require you to make Mm -hmm. this public domain knowledge available. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. Yep. I love Gonna the... get fired up about this yet. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you like the I'm sorry, but our computer code was not written with an eye toward distributing for other people to use. What? Yeah, which is a funny way of saying that we don't trust it. The codes are not documented. This is the same one. And we don't have the time or resources to document them. Uh what? <laughs> Like, isn't that precisely what you're supposed to be doing? <clears throat> Normally, we do not provide this kind of information to people we do not know. <laughs> it might be that you want to check the data analysis, and that might be of some use to us, but only if you publish your findings while properly referring to us. Uh, I love the... It's a I, nice, uh, nice hypothesis. It'd be a shame if somebody were to check it response exactly like and then they say one of them says well r is a free software package you could get r here what as you probably know these two models are quite complicated i love the one that was like i did my analysis in matlab yeah that's the same one that's the last one it says i use matlab for the geometry wow and then how many people it said that don't even like that it was clear that they use matlab but didn't even cite matlab so here's my thing they anonymize these responses 
I would not have. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, correct. And especially these ones that are the good responses, right? So they then go on to say, you know, these responses can be contrasted with replies from these authors who were not only willing to share, but clearly made an effort to make their methods accessible and well-documented. I wish they would have left all these URLs in here because these are the people that are doing science right. <laughs> yes. And uh, so the real crux of the paper was after the journal Science implemented this policy, of you have to make your data available, did it make any difference? Mm -hmm. eh, not really. <laughs> I mean, there was a small difference, but in the end, you can only reproduce, you know, less than 30% yeah. of these works. Uh, uh, the data recovery rate was less than 50. Less than 50. Mm -hmm. This is the important work being done to make sure that, you know, the science that gets published is good, right? But <laughs> those statistics well, are disturbing. <laughs> also, there's... Like, I read a, an interview with somebody recently that was going on about how important their work was. And said, you know, I am making major strides in the field of, and let's, let's mix it up, not even the same domain. But let's say I am making major strides in the study of the geometry and topology of nose hairs in the David. Mm -hmm. like it, was, it was a very, very specific sub-sub-sub-sub-field. Mm-hmm. And that is why I should be exempt from all of these responsibilities, oh rules, God. and nor society, societal norms. Because I am the world expert in topology of nose hairs on the David. Shouldn't that be why you should do it? <laughs> and yeah, that, no, that to no me... No one could know, it, possibly understand. Like, that's outrageous. Yeah, it's insulting to yeah. everybody else that you work with. Yeah, exactly. And we all understand that data are hard to collect. Yes. I just explained for 40 minutes why they're hard to collect. <laughs> but if somebody emailed you and said, I want to compare your magstrat to work that I'm doing, you yeah. would share it. Yeah. Because they would cite you. It's good for everybody. Exactly. And you have to because then when you get cited, because someone else is using it, I mean, this is the whole point of the H index, even though there's lots of problems with that, is that, you know, yes, stuff gets peer reviewed, but we also know how busy we are. And, you know, you've reviewed a paper that you're like, eh, maybe I could have spent a little more time on that. And so if your data are available, then anyone can do them and prove that, you know, your conclusion was valid, like your methods were sound. Well, I've had some really interesting so over the years, I would say maybe two to three times a year, I get an email with a data request mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. um, from various papers. Some of them all the way back. I not long ago had an email asking for data from a paper I published in like 2007. Wow. Eight. Nice. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, most of the time I can lay my hands on that data more so the stuff I did in grad school than the stuff before, but mm -hmm. I'm a digital hoarder with like six terabytes of stuff. <laughs> um, so it's in there somewhere. So it's in there somewhere. 
I, I'm happy to share it. And in one case, somebody said, hey, like, hate to say this, but I reanalyze this data and I don't agree with what you say you saw. Mm. I was like, that's really interesting and that's going to change how I form and analyze and conduct new experiments. Yeah, which is what it's supposed to do. Was I disappointed that somebody said, actually, this result's probably not valid? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I certainly wasn't upset about it. I was actually relieved that somebody, one, cared enough about this thing, too. <laughs> yeah. And two, wanted to make it better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like two people hating each other because of their sides of the comic book universe. <laughs> you both love comic books. You'd probably get along really well. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And that's how it should be. It shouldn't be like a contest to be the most correct, never proved wrong, right? Like that's that's not the point. <laughs> and also right. just because they disagreed with it and, you know, it might have been wrong. Also, that doesn't mean you were wrong to publish it because that's what you thought at the time. And science changes, right? Earth isn't the center of the solar system. Doesn't mean Galileo was a bad scientist. Right. And because the idea too. You know, yeah. Well, the, the one that really got me out of this was the have your supervisor send me an email. Like, it doesn't yes. matter who this is. Correct. Yeah, that's a Because real... they, they did have a student send these messages mm-hmm. requesting data. Um, I am more excited to help a student. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, not that I'm not excited to talk to anybody about science. No, but but if a student is interested enough to ask for your data, like, how awesome is that? Right. Mm -hmm. This is like, I don't trust people who are rude rude to waiters or other service staff, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, if you're rude to those people, you're not a good person. (laughs) Yep. Uh, as a former waitress, <laughs> I'm going to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what those reminded me of, reading, that, especially that one. That's what that reminded me of. So we didn't go over near all the statistics. They're in the paper. I encourage you to go take a look. It's short. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very interesting. Like you said, it was disturbing, disheartening. Yeah. But the light at the end of the tunnel was, it's getting better. It's better than nothing. Slowly. Yeah, it's better than it used to be. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But just like you said, you know, data repositories are, and we've talked about numerous ones of them on this show, you know, so. Well, I'm real curious. So they just did data that was from, uh, let's see, a couple years time span around this. Mm Mm-hmm. I've actually, so I've requested a lot of data over my graduate career (laughs) from different people. Uh Um, I had way better luck getting old data. Mm, Interesting. Because people were either at the end of their career and Mm. didn't, weren't worried about somebody trying to scoop them. They've already Uh made their name. Or they were excited that somebody even knew they did this 30 years ago and much less cared. (laughs) The challenges were always how to get it. Uh, One data set I requested, we had to take 
magnetic tape somewhere oh, and get man. the data pulled off of magnetic tape. Nice. Um, but I got a lot of value out of that. It saved me reproducing certain things because I said, okay, well, somebody's already done this and here's what they saw. I can now build upon that. Mm-hmm. Or it helped me verify. Uh, I found some samples that had been forgotten in a storage area since they were taken 30 something years ago Mm -hmm. and actually got a hold of somebody that had the borescope footage of it oh that's awesome and so i was watching this old not great quality videotape but suddenly i can see things as this camera is going down the bore where the sample i'm holding came from that i never would have had that context for otherwise oh that's super cool that was all shared very freely very late on the process they said oh hey if if you want to like here's here's a publication where i talked about this if you want to cite it but no no pressure like just i'm glad somebody still cares about this oh that's awesome so i've had a lot better luck with older data i'm curious if that will hold up yeah also i'm curious as a more open source generation of folks comes into being mm-hmm. mid level to senior professors yep exactly i I was curious reading these immediately, which obviously didn't get done, but, and wouldn't get done because it's probably illegal. The vintage of the person writing those response emails. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. What, what, what geologic time period are you from? Because <laughs> you got to be from the Anthropocene if your stuff is on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> whereas if you write an email wanting to talk to somebody's supervisor <laughs> no karen i'm sorry <laughs> oof you said it not me <laughs> that's okay i'm a karen so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> uh, well I mean... if you would like to request data from us <laughs> We would be happy to overload you with terabytes and terabytes of data. You know, I recently cleaned out. I had every raw wave from you and me for every episode of this show. Ouch. That was huge, I bet. It was terabytes (laughs) of information that I still had. I was like, why am I paying to back this up and store this? No kidding. That's amazing. Wow. <clears throat> I I want to say it was one point something terabytes. Oh my gosh. That's beautiful. That makes me Anyway. Happy. <laughs> yeah, so if if you want to request data from us, if we still have it, we're happy to share it with you. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Sometimes we hang out in the Slack chat room, uh, the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you think we're worth it, you can support us too. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. And nobody wants to scoop you. (laughs) Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.